trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'd like to say my voice is in fine fettle, but it's not. Actually, I'm hanging on to it by a razor's edge. But uh, you know what? There's some really important stuff to cover today. And my desire to share that with you is stronger than my desire to uh, kick back and recuperate and, you know, baby my voice. So hopefully I don't talk myself out of a job here. But I'm so glad you're part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I have some really really relevant information to share with you. First, I want to thank my sponsors who make this program possible. They include great people like, uh, well, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. In fact, I want to mention just briefly, Life Saving Food, right now, if you click on their website, it will take you to their landing page. There is a special going on this week. If you're looking to really cover a whole bunch of bases in your preparedness all in one shot, take a gander at the ultimate solar power and cooking emergency food kit. Everything you need to be truly prepared, including meals, a powerful water filter, a solar device charger, a stove, fire starter, and a whole bunch more. Stuff to eat with, you know, utensils, cups, plates, a cooking kit. This is very, very comprehensive. Here's the kicker, though. For a limited time, I believe it's this week only. This is $599.50, so 600 bucks. You're saving $232. That's a 28% savings. See the details at lifesavingfood.com. This is one of those specials that comes along every so often. It might be a good one to jump on. So, a couple things I wanted to do. First and foremost, I wanted to share with you a couple of audio excerpts from a couple of things I picked up off of Twitter over the last few days. I have heard a lot of people asking, why is it doctors have been so hesitant to write mask exemptions or vaccine exemptions? Why is it that some doctors are so uh, so reticent about you know prescribing ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine? Where is the pressure coming from that, well, no, we have to toe the line, and there's only one way that we can address this, and that is everybody get vaccinated? I want you to hear Dr. Aaron Kahariarty, I hope I'm saying his name right, explain why doctors are so hesitant to write mask and or vaccine medical exemptions. Check this out. Went out to all physicians from the medical board saying any physician in California who writes an inappropriate exemption for masks or other COVID-related measures will have his medical license subjected to investigation and disciplinary action. So for a physician, just to help you to understand, this kind of uh, threat hanging over your head is worse than the threat of getting fired. If I get fired from a particular healthcare organization, I can go to another healthcare organization or go start a private practice. If I lose my medical license, I cannot practice medicine, okay? That's how serious this is. The letter never defined what might constitute an appropriate or inappropriate mask mandate. 
So I have no idea if I write a mandate for a kid with a severe anxiety disorder that's worsened by the wearing of a mask. Is that is that going to subject my medical license to disciplinary action? Uh, physicians in California interpreted the phrase and other COVID-related re- measures to include vaccines, which had already been uh, rolled out at that point. It has become de facto impossible to get a medical exemption for a COVID vaccine in the state of California. No physician will write them, even when you have someone that has a contraindication listed on the CDC's list of contraindications to COVID vaccines. I have a patient, went to, uh, went to her rheumatologist, specialist in her uh, autoimmune condition. This specialist told this patient, I don't think you should get the COVID vaccines given your age, your low risk of COVID, and I think there's a good chance that these vaccines, based on the data that we have, could worsen your underlying medical condition. She turned to the same physician immediately afterwards and said, can you write me, therefore, a medical exemption? Uh, Because I need one for work. There's a vaccine mandate at work. Same physician that just told her not to take the vaccine or recommended against it said, no, I'm sorry, I can't write you a medical exemption because I'm afraid I might lose my license. Are you telling me that patients who have known life-threatening contraindications That's right. to receive a COVID-19 vaccine indeed are That's not right. being given exemptions. So, Isn't that something? I mean, that, you know, I feel for those doctors, and I understand there are some doctors who are like, oh, no, no, come on, this is just nonsense. But, you know, this is the beauty of getting a second opinion. I'm so grateful that there are doctors out there who will think outside the box and, and where they can act outside the box. But, man, when, when someone's threatening to take away your actual livelihood, suddenly that's not so easy. And it's not just doctors. Nurses sometimes are risking everything by coming forward with information that, uh, that runs counter to the narrative. The, the pressure from the bureaucracy, uh, and whether it's the corporate bureaucracy or the regulatory bureaucracy, I'm not sure. Maybe it's, maybe it's a combination of both. Listen to what this nurse has to say. Registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for over a decade. My specialty is critical care, trauma, and flight. Um, since the start of the COVID pandemic, I've actually been rebranded, I guess you can say, as a leading expert in early intervention strategies executed on a large mass scale using the FLCCC protocol, as well as um, ventilator or COVID patient ventilator protective strategies to optimize uh, COVID patients on the ventilators. My story actually begins back in May of 2020. I was one of the original nurses that went to NYC to help with the COVID pandemic, because as we remembered, they needed nurses. Most importantly, they needed ventilators. Well, I was the whole package, a flight nurse that can manage ventilators. And when I arrived there, um, the gross negligence and the medical you know, malfeasance that happened in there and the complete medical mismanagement of these patients is what had led a, has led us to the situation that we're in right now. The pandemic and the hysteria that was created from poor public health measures and poor execution of appropriate early intervention strategies and the handicapping of medical professionals doing their job has led to where we are right now and into the crisis situation that we are in. I will use several key case studies that will represent larger uh, descriptive statistical information for what I'm going to speak of. But when I was in New York, and what continues to happen today is that many of them are not dying from COVID. 
Now, many people don't know about me is that I'm actually a master's prepared biochemist, and I have worked extensively with the HIV uh, virus tracking um, genetic mutations. So I feel very comfortable going toe-to-toe with some of these doctors here, although I am not a doctor. I'm just a nurse. But what we saw in these front lines, we knew what was happening. And when we asked for the ibuprofen, they said, no, it was contraindicated. When we asked, like, why aren't we giving them steroids? Oh, well, it's not. We're just following orders. Following orders has led to the sheer number of deaths that has occurred in these hospitals. I didn't see a single patient die of COVID. I've seen a substantial number of patients die of negligence and medical malfeasance. Wow. Now, look, I'm not trying to undermine your faith in the medical community, but I am going to suggest that, you know, the the God complex that has, has kind of taken over of between, uh, you know, bureaucracy, regulatory agencies, government and medicine. There's there's a weird mashup that's happening there. And it's kind of spooky to see where it goes. And, you know, this harkens back to the old joke. What's the difference between God and a doctor? You know, God doesn't think he's a doctor. And I, I think there may be some truth to that. Now, I know some physicians who are very down-to-earth, humble people. But sometimes, it, you know, it seems like when you, when Dr. Fauci, for instance, says, I am the science, they're questioning the science. They can't question me. I am the science. That's hubris. And the bottom line is, there are some things in which you and I have to maintain our informed consent. We have to maintain our autonomy. Even though we're not trained medical professionals, we are the ones who know what is best for us and in many cases for our children. So the one-size-fits-all approach, which is so consistent with central planning, which is so consistent with authoritarianism or totalitarianism, boy, it's pushing hard. At any rate, and when we come back, I'm going to share with you some excerpts from Jeffrey Tucker's latest on the reactionary political ethics of lockdowns and mandates. So if you really want to comprehend what has happened to us over the last couple of years, you got to be willing to take a step back and see exactly what has happened. And you'll better understand why people are starting to rise up en masse and say no. And, you know, it's, it's by no means a slam dunk. It's not like everybody, finally, we get it. It's more a matter of the reality is becoming too hard to ignore. And by reality, I'm saying things like, hey, remember those uh, those vaccines that they said had, you know, 100% efficacy or 90% efficacy? I mean, uh, 58% efficacy. And Oh, now you need how many boosters? You need how many shots in order to be considered fully vaccinated? Yeah, that reality, it's getting really tough to ignore. And I think the people who hesitated and waited to get vaccinated probably are realizing maybe that was a smart decision and they have nothing to regret for, for doing so. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Look, the bottom line is uh, in today's real estate market, which is crazy, you don't have time to dilly-dally when it comes to uh, making an offer and being ready to step up and purchase the home of your choice. you got to have your ducks in a row now. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you no matter where you are in the state of Utah. 
Contact Heather by calling 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I know that uh, the the mainstream press really likes to play down things that are inconvenient. You know, when it comes to the narrative, for instance, the the March for Life, which took place over the weekend in Washington, D.C., there wasn't very much talk about it. But, uh, wow, there were a lot of people out there marching to commemorate, you know, the Roe v. Wade anniversary and to stand up for the rights of the unborn. Pretty powerful stuff. Well, there was another event that took place on January 23rd that uh, the press barely covered. And that was the anti-mandate, anti-lockdown rally in Washington, D.C., which those uh, those members of the press who did cover it typically described it as an anti-vax rally. You know, and that's a ridiculous thing to say about an event involving thousands of people who've had enough of the coercive impositions of the nearly last two years. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, says, says you know, these folks to, to be there had to brave cold, the cruelties of today's plane travel, the D.C. vaccination, as well as mask mandates, the prospect of being doxxed from facial recognition technology, and also the financial strains that have hit so many families due to business closures and inflation. So all differences of opinion aside, the main message was that everyone has a right to freedom. Let's get back to the progress we were experiencing in our lives before this great disruption. But the question that he asks is, why did it take so long for Americans to finally hit the streets in protest? Well, for one thing, it was mostly illegal to do so from March 13th of 2020 onward. States imposed stay-at-home orders and limited gatherings to 10 people. You remember this, right? People couldn't meet for civic clubs, church, family reunions, much less anything vaguely political. We were forcibly separated for many months. And when the George Floyd protests started, well, then they got the green light, but that light later turned red again. So Jeff Tucker says, look, there's massive pent-up frustration out there today alongside depression, ill health, financial hardship, and generalized shock to discover that we live in a country where freedom can no longer be taken for granted. Amen to that. We now know that at any moment... They, meaning those in positions of power, believe that they can close our businesses, our churches, take away our right to travel, or even show a smile on any pretext. He says it's absolutely astonishing. Now, is backlash coming? Well, he says, actually, it's here. It's been a bit quiet now for now, but it's not going to stay that way for long. The ruling class absolutely overplayed its hand this time. And Jeff Tucker says in the coming years, they will rediscover that rulers in every society must acquiesce to the consent of the governed over the long term. And when that consent is withdrawn, well, the results can be wildly unpredictable, rather. But they generally mitigate against the rulers and in favor of a new way of doing things. How can he be confident about this? Well, it comes down to three different ways to look at the course of history. So, one, history is on one long trajectory headed toward one great culminating moment. Excuse me. Every moment in history points toward that end state. Now, if you've studied Hegel or Marx and a slew of other crazy ideologues who think in that millennial or millenarian tradition, you'll recognize that. And also some apocalyptic religion traditions hold that view. This worldview, the perception of inevitability somehow baked into the stream of events, has made a great deal of mischief over time. Number two, 
History is just one thing after another with no particular rhyme or reason. So anyone who tries to make sense of it is inventing mirages of meaning that do not exist in reality. Now, that view was generally held by English philosopher David Hume, but that's kind of a crude summary. There is something to this idea, but it doesn't quite take account of certain observable ebbs and flows. And the third way of looking at it, history is cyclical, with overlapping rounds of error and truth, good and evil, liberty and power, progress and reaction, bull and bear markets, recession and recovery, centralization and decentralization, and these cycles are powered by the ebb and flow of forces within the population that shape them. Now, as Jeffrey Tucker says, you can probably tell from my description, that's the view I hold. And by the way, I'm, I'm in agreement with him on this. It strikes me as realistic, and it fits most known facts about the shape of history. So the last two years, he says, have been defined by a theme, which is centralization of power. It's happened in technology. It's affected politics. It's taken place within financial markets. To some extent, it's even true in media culture, despite the rise of the Internet. And the centralization has overwhelmed all of us. We previously believed that there was some integral relationship between private life and political life, such that the aspirations of the ruled, due to democracy and so on, were somehow impactful on the rulers, until suddenly we were shown that this is not the case. We previously believed that our social media and digital spaces were our own, until we were taught that they are not. We also previously believed that the Bill of Rights protected us, that our court systems more or less worked, and that there were certain things that simply could not happen to us due to law and tradition, and then suddenly there were no limits to power. So Jeffrey Tucker asks, why did all of this happen when it did? Well, he says it's precisely because these old world institutions have been on the ropes for the previous 10 to 20 years. The Internet has been a massive force for decentralization in every area of life. Technology, media, government, even money. We've seen over the last decade or two, uh, perhaps a, a gradual melting away of the old order and emergence of a new one, with a great deal of promise for empowering individuals and all social classes in new ways we had not previously seen. And Tucker says the richness and malleability of the human population were on the march against every force that previously had held it back. Now think about what that means for the old order. That means a massive loss of power and profit. It means the transformation of the relationship between the individual and the state, plus what media we consume, what money we use, what rules we obey, how our children are educated, what businesses with which we trade, and so on. In other words, the ruling class... A big term, but it describes something very real, faced the biggest, most disruptive threat in generations, or perhaps in many centuries. That's the state of the world back in 2019. It wasn't just about Trump, but he symbolized the possibility of dramatic change, even at the highest levels, even if his own political impulses embodied reactionary elements, too. The main point is that he was never one of them. In fact, he hated them. Of all people, he was not supposed to be president, yet there he was, tweeting and disregarding protocol and generally behaving like a loose cannon. And his presidency coincided rather with a growing restlessness in the population, so something had to be done. Something big, something dramatic. Something had to happen to remind the unruly masses who precisely is in charge. Therefore, the most powerful interest groups set to lose in the newly decentralized order of the future 
decided to act. They would reassert their power in ways that would inspire shock and awe. They had to convince the president to go along, and sadly, they finally did. The result is what we have lived through for 22 months. It's been nothing less than a display of power and control. Jeffrey Tucker says we've all been traumatized in ways we never imagined possible. Our workplaces have been disrupted or shut. They managed to end religious freedom for a time. The freedoms we all believe we had and which were growing by the day came to a dramatic and stunning halt. So who's in charge? Well, in the spring of 2020, the entire ruling class shouted in unison, not just here, but all over the world, we are. Now, he says, I don't mean that there was a plot in some crude sense. I don't believe there was one. There was just a coming together of interests born of fear and frustration that the world was changing too quickly and the wrong people were going to land on top. So in retrospect, he says, it seems obvious the great decentralization would not be a soft landing from the old order. There would be bumps along the road, to put it mildly. We'll come back to his commentary right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. As you're listening to this program, you're going to hear me from time to time mention some of the sponsors who make it possible. And I'm not telling you now, you have to go do business with them or you're not a good person. But I'm going to suggest if you find value in the information that I share with you here on these airwaves or on on this uh, podcast... I would hope that you would at least let these sponsors know that their message is reaching your ears. They are the ones who make it possible for me to do what I do. And this includes Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. You can visit their website at SewingQuiltingCenter.com. Please keep in mind they've got some great specials going on through the month of January. Look, if you aren't into sewing or quilting or embroidery, I bet you know someone who is. And they have machines that make absolutely amazing things possible. Best of all, they don't just sell these machines. They'll actually teach you classes. These are free classes. When you purchase a machine from them, they will teach you how to use those classes. Those classes never expire. You can come back and take them again if you forget or if you just want to refresh your course. And they service what they sell. So talk about peace of mind. It's not like, well, buy the machine and then it's just going to sit there and collect dust. No. They want you to use it. They want you to put it to good use. Create things that are, you know, heritage for you and your family. And know that it's backed up with great service and everything you need to, to make it a reality. Thread, fabric, etc. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. So I'm sharing this article from the Brownstone Institute. This is from Jeffrey A. Tucker. The reactionary political ethos of lockdowns and mandates. And I think he gives a pretty good recounting of what we saw happen over the last couple of years. He says, you know, it's best to think of these grim times as a parenthesis in history. A dramatic pause in the progress of liberty, prosperity, and peace. But just that, it's a pause. Okay, this isn't the end, it's just a pause. Lockdowns and mandates ultimately stemmed from reactionary impulses, the same ones we saw in history when throne and altar set out unsuccessfully to crush the rise of liberalism. And it was a remarkable thing to behold, to be sure. But he says there's just one major problem with the whole thing. It did not actually achieve its aims. Now he says, let me explain that. If you think of the aim as take back our power, well, it did accomplish that, however, temporarily, but that's not how they pitched it. 
They said they would stop and crush a virus and that all your sacrifice would be worth it because otherwise you would die or have your life wrecked. Now, that agenda, that propaganda has been a tremendous flop. In other words, the whole thing is being exposed as a massive error at best and a complete lie at worst. Now, lying has consequences. When you're discovered, people do not believe you in the future. That's the situation currently faced by big tech, big media, big government, big pharma, big everything. They display their power, but they do not display their intelligence, and they have not earned our trust. In fact, quite the opposite. This is why the seeds of revolt rather, have been so deeply planted and why they're growing so mightily now. So the driving goal here will be to restart the engine of progress back to what it was just two years ago. Back to the push for the decentralist paradigm. The technology that was pushing that paradigm is not only still with us, but it has been tested and dramatically advanced during lockdowns and mandates. We have more tools than ever before to confront and finally defeat the ruling class that seized so much power over two years. Tools and technology cannot and will not be wished away. They embody knowledge that we have and knowledge that billions of people over the world are ready to use. We still have those tools. Among the most powerful of them is freedom itself. Humankind is not meant to be caged. We have rationality, creativity, aspirations, and the will to use them all to better our lives. So, yes, we have lived through an enormous setback, pushed by reactionary elements along the ruling class, but it's likely a prequel for what comes next. And that is a backlash against reaction and toward a new stage of progress. Cycles within cycles. Forces of centralization have had a field day and a good run of it. But the forces of decentralization are fighting back with good odds of regaining the narrative again. It's progress through freedom versus reaction through compulsion. The battle never ends. Pretty interesting stuff. I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I want to shift here about, okay, so if we have a clear view of what's going on, at least we have an idea of what what is taking place, how do we teach kids about the realities of our world without denying them the innocence that should be theirs, at least for, for a season in their life? I mean, come on, quickly enough, the world is going to strip that innocence away. It happens to all of us. Why are some people in such a hurry to do it? Well, Paul Rosenberg has an essay on teaching kids about the vulnerabilities of humanity, which is essential to helping them recognize that, hey, we may have things to fix, but if we work at it, we can fix them. He says humans have weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Now, that's unfortunate, of course, but by itself, it's not deeply problematic. What's problematic is failing to identify and address these weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Paul Rosenberg says it's important to understand that our species has already overcome plenty of vulnerabilities and thrived in spite of them. And if this weren't true, we'd be living like chimpanzees. So he says, my point today is that we need to teach children about our vulnerabilities. Evading the subject keeps them ignorant and leaves them open to damages. Not only does it delay them from overcoming their vulnerabilities, but it inculcates a belief that they're not supposed to have vulnerabilities in the first place. And since they do, well, something's wrong with them. So he says, it's important to understand that everything we do occurs within a status-mad world. 
we learned very early that the high places in life, at least as they're portrayed perhaps 90% of the time, are attainable only to those who appear invulnerable. Let me put that another way. Those who can never be wrong. Kind of explains a lot of behavior on the part of political folks, right? Leaders become leaders after all because they seem very certain of something appealing. Well, he says, please bear in mind that we're born with brain circuitry that recognizes status and does so unbidden and within about 40 milliseconds. Even, even children will be very sensitive to this and will feel low status because they are small, weak, and ignorant. They very often think, even if partially and dimly, I'm supposed to be strong and I'm not. Now, Paul Rosenberg says such things are damaging to children, especially because they come so early in life before perspectives and defenses can be formed. So making the problem worse is the fact that adults don't want to talk about vulnerabilities for more or less the same reason. During their lifetimes, beginning with similar child experiences, they learned that showing a vulnerability diminishes one's status. This, of course, becomes a habit for them, so talking about such things, even with a child, becomes uncomfortable. In this, we see a cycle of damage and discomfort afflicting generation after generation, but beyond the direct pain involved, this carries a far greater cost since it routes around addressing and healing those vulnerabilities, or at least patching them over. He says, by addressing this subject thoughtfully, we find ourselves with an opportunity to do better and to do better for our children. Now, having explained some of the basics, he says, let's move on to some specifics, rather. He says, I'm listing these in more or less chronological order, starting with those that can and need to be addressed in the earliest years and moving forward from there. So the chronology is short, and it's based entirely on his personal experience. Your experiences may vary. But as parents soon learn, all children are different, and so all circumstances are different. Parenting is impossible to do perfectly, so we do our best and fix our mistakes as we recognize them. Parenting is more demanding than any other job I can think of. So he says, here's his current list. Starts with, I want it. The child sees a toy they want, or whatever, and seizes it from someone else. Now, the parent, of course, says, no, you may not take someone else's thing. But if the child is old enough to comprehend, we can go on to say, I know you feel like you want it and want to take it. But that's not an idea we should listen to. We have to say no to it and share. So, by this, we're acknowledging the self-generated error. While not condemning the child for it, we tell them to defy it. Actually, that seems really productive. He says, we want our children to develop internal depth and strength. And it begins with being able to recognize and regulate their own impulses. Now, he says, don't worry that this lesson and others like it take time to root. Just keep teaching and gently requiring. An iron hand in a velvet glove is a little dramatic, but it makes a nice illustration for a balancing act. How about this? You will do it. Saying this, the child is trying to force its will upon others. They want something, they're fixated on it, and ignoring the equal personhood of others. Now, even though this seems unkind, it's more often just the child being overcome by their desires. Paul Rosenberg says in this case, we need to teach the child their impulses aren't essentially wrong, in other words, to want the toy or whatever, but they go too far. The child has to stop their desire from overflowing and treat others as equals, even though they don't feel like doing so. So a useful response would sound something like this. Yes, I know you feel like that, and we've all felt like that. Even, But we don't allow ourselves to behave that way because if we did, life would get very bad for all of us. 
Once the child pauses or asks why, you say, well, when we force people to do things, they stop playing with us and stop working with us. What would happen if we were pushy, that pushy with a grown-up? They wouldn't build houses or cars for us. They wouldn't grow food for us or deliver it to the grocery stores. Things would get very, very bad for us. So we can't try to force people or they'll stop doing things for us. Another great teaching point. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'll tell you, man, I started out today really wondering if my voice was going to make it. I've got some some best of, you know, on standby here, but I think I'm just going to capture the momentum and keep plowing forward as long as I can still speak. So right now I'm sharing with you a commentary from Paul Rosenberg about teaching children about vulnerabilities. And I agree with his basic premise. You know, we are taught from a very young age. You are not supposed to have vulnerabilities, or at the very least, if you have them, you keep them to yourself and you do not admit to them, much less acknowledge them and try to fix them. I think the the latter way is the better way to go. But how do you teach kids about that? I mean, how how do you help kids really understand the application of the golden rule, for instance? Here's another example of a vulnerability that, uh, that kids have to learn how to deal with, and that's hurt feelings. There are lots of ways kids have their feelings hurt by other children, but purely internal comparisons with others and so on. And while every situation is different, there's one response that works for most of them. You can say, I'm very sorry that you feel that way, but I know you're good. I will always love you and we can fix anything that needs to be fixed. But I want you to remember that we feel bad things too strongly. When something makes us feel bad, we feel more bad than we should. It's just a problem that people have. And from there you can add, we have to stop listening to it or modify as required. And this is something you should remember for yourself as well. Paul Rosenberg says, when we feel bad, (laughs) excuse me, we almost always feel worse than this situation actually warrants. It's an old human problem and it's still with us, but if you can get this message into your children at an early age, its hold over the future may diminish. And then he comes back to status. And this is one that I think every one of us, whether you're a kid or not, you've got to deal with status. Nothing will make you more miserable than looking at life through status-tinted lenses. Paul Rosenberg says, at some point you'll have to deal with children's observations, usually honest, even if fully inconsiderate, about who has a bigger house, a better car, and so on. And he says, the best answer I know runs about like this. I don't want you to talk about such things because they don't matter. And because they make people feel bad. Now, from there, you can say that, yes, people do have varying amounts of possessions, but we buy things because they are useful for us not to show to others. That trying to be better than others wastes our time and means that we're being controlled by what other people do, trying to make ourselves look better instead of what actually improves us. It also makes people feel bad, which is a big problem, too. Injuring someone's feelings makes almost everything worse. Now, there are other cases, he says, obviously, there could be many more issues of this type, but for more or less all of them, the model holds. You don't condemn the child for having a vulnerability, point out the vulnerability or error, insist the child act contrary to the vulnerability or error. In other words, you can be very forthright and direct saying things like, well, sometimes we feel like X. That's not a good thing, but sometimes we do feel it. 
we have to force ourselves not to do it. Instead, we make ourselves do X, and after a while, we stop feeling like doing it. I'll give you an example of what that looks like in my life. I mean, once upon a time, I loved to throw down and argue with strangers online. Oh, my goodness. What, somebody's wrong on the Internet? Well, I'm going to be up all night trying to do my best to not so much convince them of the error of their ways as to beat them into submission. I'm really ashamed to even have to admit this, but, yep, that's that's what I was doing. And it's it's hard when when you see someone who's stating something with absolute certainty, or worse, someone's insulting your intelligence with something that that perhaps they don't know what they're talking about. The desire to put somebody in their place is really, really tough. So going back to Paul Rosenberg's example, sometimes we feel like putting people in their place. That's not a good thing, but sometimes we do feel it. We have to force ourselves not to do it. Instead, we make ourselves, well, in my case, uh, simply scroll on. (laughs) Just move on past it. Look, there's been times where I've actually written out a response, forced myself to take a couple deep breaths and say, do I really want to send this out there? Knowing it's probably going to provoke some kind of reaction, some knee-jerk reaction. In fact, even if I've tried to be diplomatic, there's a good chance it's still going to make someone feel like you're being attacked. I find it's uh, much wiser to just let it go. It's just, it's that much easier. You know, it's for so long. I operated under the idea that, well, somebody's got to win this, this discussion. And yet I, I have to give props. It was Paul Rosenberg who showed me there is a better way. And that better way is when you lose the need to win, when you lose the need to dominate someone into admitting you're right, I'm right and you're wrong. You don't really win anything. All you do is you alienate people and, you know, force them further and further into their ideological shell. If you can speak the truth to someone in such a way that they don't feel like, well, if you don't agree with me, you're some kind of a horrible person. You're leaving the door open for them to at least consider your point of view. And if you deliver your point of view with uh, with enough genuine love, I'm not talking syrupy, I just care about you, but, you know, if, if you're... If you're speaking to them as someone who genuinely wants to understand them and wishes to be understood, in fact, if you're taking the approach of, I'm not trying to change your mind, but just so you understand, here's how I see things. And if we don't agree, that's fine. I promise you will be shocked how many times someone will come back to you at a later point in time and say, I've had some time to think about what we discussed. And maybe all they say is, I see where you're coming from. That's huge. That's huge because they're they're admitting that, uh, yes, you have a viewpoint that I can understand why you see things that way. Even if I don't personally agree, I can understand why you see it that way. None of this, well, if you don't tow this line, you can't be my friend and you're not patriotic enough to stand in my company. And You see the difference, right? But most importantly, if they really feel like what you were sharing with them was being shared out of genuine concern for them, and love for them, you might even hear those magical words, my thinking has come around on this issue. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Anyway, to summarize, Paul Rosenberg says, by doing these things, 
We teach our children that our species has weak points, but we're also well able to overcome them. He says the base level understanding we instill in them will undermine a hundred forms of confusion and negative self-judgment. It will also support an honest and generally positive self-estimation for the rest of their lives. Sure, we have things to fix, but if we work at it, we're able to fix them. That just seems a lot more productive than some of the other approaches that, that I've seen people take, and I've taken my myself. Look, I'm not going to pretend for a moment that I have all the answers to life's problems. I certainly don't. I am, however, someone who believes that there is more to life than simply, you know, acquiring material things and showing off how successful I am so that everybody knows that if I die with the most toys, I've won. I think there's a little higher purpose in life. And if I could be so bold, I'll just say, I believe that every one of us brings into this life gifts. And I'll just come right out and say it. God-given gifts and talents that are yours alone. Nobody else has them. There's no other individual who's exactly like you. Every person is unique. And I I believe, however Pollyanna-ish this may sound to some, Every one of us has the capacity to make the world a better place in our own way. And the people I have met who I consider the greatest individuals with whom I've crossed paths are the people who've dialed into that greatness and found a way to make their purpose, their mission, their their calling in life, if you will, something that builds, lifts, and ennobles the people around them. Now, this doesn't mean they become a doormat. It just simply means that they harness their power into uh, and, their, and their talents into something besides self-aggrandizement. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Abraham Lincoln, but I think it's something along the lines of they forget themselves into immortality. Rather than, you know, trying to just, you know, labor their, their whole life trying to build a big monument to themselves. Think about the people who've had the biggest impact on your life, the most positive impact on your life. And I'd wager those are the kind of people that we're talking about. Those are the kind of people you and I need to aspire to become. Sounds pretty lofty, right? I don't know. That sounds like it'd be a lot of hard work. It sounds like uh, maybe people would think I'm some kind of weirdo. It is hard work, and they will think you're a weirdo. Absolutely. But here's the bigger question. Is it worth it? I happen to think it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show.